Good morning. How are y'all doing? Are you doing fine? Turn to someone around you and say good morning to them. Be, feel free to ask them how they are doing. Okay. That might take like a lunch date to get all that down, but you know, it's, it's good. Yes. Um, I want to say a couple of things before I go any further. Before that, grab your Bibles, John chapter 21, verse 1. This morning, John 21, verse 1. So uh, this week, Seth actually texted us and said he wanted to do the offering. And, and so after we picked ourselves up off the floor, you know, because that is absolutely out of character for him, I want to tell you, God works in amazing ways, does he not? Yes. And so, uh, Seth, thank you so much for sharing your heart today. Uh, about that. And also, today was Ashley's first day singing with us, and boy, she did an amazing job. Yes, amen. Just tremendous, and we're so blessed to have her actually on our team also. And also, this thing about tidying up and sparking joy. I don't know about that. Now, I'm not sure about that. I do know where that's come from. You can Google that if you wish, and we will not go into that because that involves work. But anyway, good morning. It's great to see you today. uh, What does God do with us? It's John chapter 21. It's a great narrative, verses 1 through 14. What does God do with us? And we have asked that question so many times, I think, in our lives about other people. We probably said that to our children or said that to someone around us. Like, you know, what am I going to do with you? We have said, as if sometimes, like with our kids, we have an option. You know, I'm going to give you away. I'm going to do something with you. I don't know. What do I do with you? And so I wonder sometimes, as we're going to look at the life of Peter for a moment, and we're going to touch on this subject of regret and, and that, uh, a few other things today in this narrative. So I wonder if God doesn't look, you, you know, you think, well, maybe God looks at us and says, well, scratching his head, well, what do I do with you? Well, I, I know that God does not do that. I know that God is sovereign. He understands all things, and he has a plan for our life. I understand that, but yet that is my thought this morning. So John chapter 1, can I start by reading the narrative to you? Then we base this whole teaching from this story today. So starting with verse 1, it says this, And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself, uh, he revealed himself in, this, in this way. So this is after the resurrection, and so here's what happens. It's Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. It's a subject that has been discussed theologically for years and the implications of this action, that of Peter and the disciples. And sometimes, I think over the years in teachings, we have judged or misjudged them as to their actions. We say, well, this is disobedience, and what are they doing? They've given up. They're going back to what they did before. They're going back and starting over to where Christ had found them. And I think there's actually a greater and a deeper understanding of what is going on here. So we continue to read. And they went out and got into the boat, and, but that night they caught nothing. But as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it in. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And and when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Verse 9, And when they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire in place, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, 
bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. It's kind of that moment of, is it awkward or is it awe? You know, you wonder. So everybody's kind of quiet. Nobody's wanting to say anything about this is the Lord. And the last verse, verse 13, says this. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, or or this is the last verse, 14. And there was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to disciples after he was raised from the dead. What does God do with us? You know, I, I wonder sometimes well, if, you know, if we think that as humans, does God ever think that about us? In those moments of bewilderment, in those moments where uh, we're looking for direction in our life, that there are times when, yes, he guides us differently through those moments. There are times when our path is extremely clear for us and we know exactly where we're going. And then there are other times when it's not so clear, as in this case of Peter and his fishing buddies. So what does Peter do? What does Peter do when things are not so clear for him, for his direction for the future, after the resurrection of Christ? What does he do? Well, he goes fishing. And so say, oh, he's disobedient in what he's doing. He's running from God and he's making his own decisions at this point in his life. And so I think some people have condemned him for his actions. But when he says, I'm going fishing, listen, Peter does not know what else to do. I believe that's really the reason for his accident. Peter really doesn't know what else to do. When you think about his mindset for a moment, that they're fresh from this indescribable, intense nightmare of the crucifixion, They are. And then the wonder of the resurrection. Peter has to be replaying all the events of these last few days within his own mind and his own heart. He's dealing with this heightened level of regret in his life of the things that he did and the things that he said. And so here's the scene. Peter's sitting there with Thomas and James and and John and two of the others. And they're just waiting. And I'm going to tell you, waiting was as painful for Peter as it is for some of us this morning, that we hate to wait. We know we talked about this so many times that we're in this culture where nothing is quite fast enough. If our internet is fast, we want it faster, right? If our computer is fast, we want it even faster than the one that we currently have. It is. If, if the drive through is slow, then we don't understand why, so we get impatient because we want it now. And so Peter struggles with waiting just as you and I struggle with waiting. It's disorienting to him because Jesus is not there to simply give him direction, and he has no further instruction because Peter is the guy that always knows what to do next. He is that guy. So I begin to really reflect on his life for a moment. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who's the first to respond? It's Peter. He's the first to ever say that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Peter do after he responds to Christ with that proclamation? He begins to school Jesus into how he should carry out his duties as the Messiah. Yet that is this guy. He always knows the next thing to do. It's Peter who, when Jesus approaches the boat and he calls for Peter in the middle of the storm, what does Peter do? He's the one that jumps out of the boat and he walks to Jesus on the water. You say, but yet, but wait a minute, Mark, because the rest of the story is that he begins to sink. Yes, but don't judge Peter too harshly because how many of you in this room has ever walked on water, right? 
Yes. So if you really think about that, he's the guy that always knows what to do next. I begin to reflect on other things about in the Garden of Gethsemane when the disciples are asleep, that he awakes and he, he sees this, this arrest about to take place of Christ. And he comes to the aid of Jesus and he comes to defense by really removing his sword and he cuts off the ear of that of the temple guard. Then Jesus says to him, Peter, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And so Jesus performs a miracle. He takes the ear, he reattaches it, and he heals the temple guard. But he's the guy that always knows what to do. Well, he's out of control. No, he's just that person. So don't judge him harshly. Because if you really think about where are the other disciples, well, they're asleep. It's Peter this very day who in Jesus is cooking breakfast for them on that fire He has fish, he has bread, but he says, hey, bring some of the fish that you've caught also. Who is the guy that goes back out to the boat, brings in the net, and brings additional fish? It is that of Peter. It's kind of the way he is wired. He knows what to do next, and he's not afraid to take action. That is his personality. But what does he do now? Because you can't get these words out of his mind that Christ spoke to him prior to the crucifixion. That Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter stands up in somewhat of an arrogant attitude and he says, absolutely not. That will never happen. I would die for you. I'd lay down my life for you. Yet we find that he walks this narrative out in his life and he denies Christ. He can't get that out of his mind. He can't erase this vision he has of that moment after he denies Christ for the third time that he meets His eyes meet with the eyes of Christ there in that courtyard after this beating. And and they have this this nonverbal kind of communication with their eyes as as they look at one another. He can't erase all of those things. So he's dealing with all of that within his own heart and with his own mind. But Peter is still Peter. And he he, he does what he knows to do. It's the way he's kind of wired. You say, what is this disobedience at what he's done? I would say no, that it's more yet his personality, that he has to do something. He can't just sit. And so he prepares the boat and he prepares the nets and he goes fishing. He's going to sell the fish in the market to earn a living. It's something familiar and comforting. I thought about this. In a moment of trauma, in a moment of discomfort, what do we do? We always look for things that comfort us, right? And that when you've had a hard day and it's been a long day and maybe you've had some disturbing things happen in that day and you reach the time for dinner at the end of the day, what do you do? You begin to think about things that are going to comfort you from that day, right? And so if you're in the South, it can be things like, um, uh, what, what, I don't know, it, it could be, it could be southern food. We like southern food because they comfort us, right? Yes, it could be country fried steak and gravy. That's what comforts me. And and some uh what would some mac and cheese on the side, that would be comforting maybe or something else, some fried okra. Now we're really talking, right? We're getting into some real comfort food. You say, "Mark, I like fried chicken. That really comforts me when I'm upset." So I do that, and then you top all of that off with banana pudding, and then you go home and you feel disgusting about yourself, right? And you feel even worse, yes. But yet for a moment, it comforted me. And I wonder sometimes with Peter and all of this trauma, all of these things, all of this regret, all the things that are going through his mind, 
that if somehow he goes back to that, it's comforting and familiar to him. And what is that? That is fishing. That's what he does. And as long as he does not know what to do, he does something productive with his life. That's it. That Peter is not the only restless one here because the other disciples simply go with him. So we can't leave them out either. And the Bible says in this narrative that they fish all night and they catch absolutely nothing. They try both sides of the boat. They move the boat around. Somebody had to say at some point in the middle of the night, man, you know, in a sarcastic way, wonder whose idea it was to go fishing, you know? Yeah, and you can imagine the tension in the boat between the disciples because this is Peter also. Peter is the one that after the third time of denying Jesus that night, that it says that Peter cursed. He cursed, yes. That he used profanity. For us in the South, he cussed, okay? It's what he did, right? It's exactly what he did. Then maybe he let some words go at that moment in the boat, you know, some choice words because he's feeling the pressure of life and all this is going on. And for that kind of person, he always has to know what to do next. But right now in his life, he doesn't really have a clue as to what he's supposed to do. So he goes back to what is familiar and he begins to fish. But in the middle of that, he catches nothing. And all of a sudden, as the day begins to break, they hear this voice come from the shore, and the voice says, children, you haven't caught any fish, have you? It's a rhetorical question that Jesus gives them. And, and if you really read the Greek and how it's written, that's exactly, but it even goes more than that, because the word for children is used in a masculine form, so he calls them little boys, is exactly what he does. Yes, I love it. I love it. Jesus knows exactly how to deal with these guys. He said, little boys, you haven't caught any fish, have you? And then we know that James, in frustration, he answers back, no, absolutely. Maybe there was some others that said some other things that he didn't say them out loud quietly so that he could hear them from the shore because they don't recognize him. And some people say, but it's because they're like this, they're a hundred yards, the scripture says, away. So they don't really recognize who he is. But I believe to think that the resurrected body of Christ actually looks different than what he did before because we know Mary at the tomb, when, he run, when she runs into Jesus, she thinks that he's the gardener. He's the keeper of, that, of, of, of the tombs. And so I, I think that they don't recognize him because he looks a little different. And, and so I think he yells at them and he says, Hey, little boys, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And I put myself in this narrative for a moment. And if I've been fishing all night, and there's some cat on the shore yelling at me, hey, you haven't caught anything, have you? And then, uh, first of all, I'm wondering, how does he know that? And then, secondly, I'm thinking, what business is it of his? I'm already frustrated. Good thing we're 100 yards from the shore and not there with you, you know? And you ask that kind of question. But yet, all of a sudden, I begin to think about this, and what I begin to think about is this, that Peter and John, they've been here before. Their mind begins to go back to this moment in the book of Luke, I think it is chapter 5. They've been here where Jesus tells them to cast the net again. All of a sudden, they begin to connect the dots, I believe. They cast the net, and the net becomes so full at this point in this story that they can't pull it back into the boat, and all of a sudden, John realizes who the stranger is. Yes. And his eyes meet Peter's eyes. And he says to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And 
You know how Peter is wired because Peter is the guy that's going to do the next thing. And so what does Peter do? That he, he puts on his, his cloth, his outer garment. Historically, we believe that when they would fish here in the Sea of Galilee, that, that they would fish most of the time because of the heat. They would fish completely naked. Now, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you're a fisherman, you don't want to like bring that up the next time you're on a boat with a bunch of guys. That's just not the thing to do, right? No, yeah, let's do like the disciples. No, let's don't do like the disciples, right? In that, right, exactly. So he clothes himself because he's probably fishing naked. Yes, and he throws himself in the water and he simply swims to the shore. What does God do with us? I think about this. What does God do with us when we lack direction and when we're confused? What does he do with us when we're dealing with regret? And what, do we, what does he do with us when things have not gone as our life Maybe we had it planned and or we despise waiting or we're not sure of the next move in our life or we think we're in control and we fight for that control for our lives sometimes with him or we're in the throes of doubt. What does he do with us? I love this story because what it says to me is this, that he simply serves us breakfast. It's an awesome thought. That when we don't, when we don't think he's been working on our behalf, He has been working. When we think there's no plan, there has always been a plan. Yeah. When we wonder how he will accept us, when he knows everything about us, he serves us breakfast. And that is an amazing thought about the character and the nature of God. So there's a couple of things that I would like for us to see. I believe the Lord wants to see from this, this narrative. The first is this, waiting or patience is part of the process of our lives. Now, can I tell you, I hate waiting. I don't know about you, but I just don't like it. I, I, I Maybe, you know, that's one thing that the Lord is working with me on. And sometimes is that thing of impatience in my life? Yes. But yet what I realized when I read, when I, when I wrote this, waiting or patience is part of the process of our lives the word process, I think, is the key because it is actually a process in our life, that of patience. It's James chapter 5, verse 7. I think if you're going to talk about patience and waiting, you have to go again as we have gone before back to the book of James. And here's what he says to us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it or over it, some of your translations say, until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is saying here, here's how you can react. Here's a couple of ways how you can react to this broken Genesis chapter 3 world that we live in. He said, first is this, you can, and it's a heavy load, yes, that you're feeling. That's exactly where Peter is. He's under that heavy load of he doesn't know the next step or the direction for his life. And so he's struggling with that. And so here's how you can react. You can become arrogant. You can say, hey, I'm entitled to these things in my life. And I should know. And I should have everything lined up. Because everybody else seems to have everything lined up in their life. But look at my life. It's not doing that. I'm fishing. I'm back to where I started. What is wrong with me? And what's going on? And where is God in all of this? And we kind of become somewhat arrogant in our lives. We do. I know Peter must have had a thought, wait a minute. My plan was that Jesus was going to return, and yes, and he was going to be the king of Israel. He was going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He was going to drive out the Romans is what he was going to do. And then that would make me kind of like vice king is what it was going to make me, you know, kind of deal. And and so that's the way I had it all worked out. But here I am fishing again. Yes, 
And so what, what James says is this, you can react like that, but lovingly he says, hey, instead of that, be patient. Be patient. Yeah. How are you going to approach the challenges of your life? Is what he's saying. And some of us say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Lord, I'm going to take things on my own hands. Just step aside, God. If you don't step in, step aside and let me handle all of this. As I think sometimes, and then sometimes we say, okay, I've reached my limit. I'm in panic stage right now. I don't know what to do. I'm paralyzed. I just can't make any more decisions. I'm overwhelmed. Or then sometimes we get to this point. We say, I quit. I'm done. I'm leaving. It's over. I'm going to withdraw. It's done. And so what James says, instead of all that, be patient. Because in framing patience for you and I, it's not exactly how we have always thought it to be. Because we see it as some kind of personality trait that makes us immune to all the things that happen in our lives. It's like it kind of rolls off of us. It doesn't affect us anymore. If we pray for patience, God is going to give us this kind of nonstick coating to go over our life. And so when everything or when things don't go our way, we're just going to say, Oh, well, if the Lord wills, and that's where we're going to simply how we're going to live our life. But the reality of our life is that we go fishing. That's it. We do. And we become frustrated. And we get confused sometimes. And we get angry. Because we don't know this next step. What I really believe that James is saying to us about patience and waiting is that waiting has a place of purpose in our spiritual growth. Is exactly what. He's not just teaching us about being patient, but it's a picture of waiting with patience. It's that of waiting with purpose for our lives. That's why he uses the analogy of the farmer here. It's about waiting with purpose for our lives. It's, it's about being, being patient over something. What are you being patient over? And that is that when you look at the farmer and why he uses this analogy, because it's something that is precious. It's the crop that he brings in. So what is he talking about for you and I? That patience with purpose simply leads to growth and maturity within my life and your life. That's how God grows us. That's how you and I grow. Is that of being patient, that of being waiting, that God is working at this moment. Jesus is working in the very life of Peter while he is, while he's out there fishing. Yes, and he feels like, man, I, I let him down. I did all of these things. I don't, have, I don't have direction for my life for the future. I'm going back to what I'm doing. And he can't see God working, but yet God is working in his life all the time. In this entire moment, God is working because it is simply that of patience with purpose in our life. Man, that's hard to swallow. Because I, what I want, I want now, you know? I want it laid out, and I want all the steps, and I want it all listed out, and I want it I want nice little check boxes right beside it, you know, so I can check it off. I'm going to prioritize all of this, and that's exactly the way I want my life. But yet, what do you do when you're out fishing? What do you do when you're in this kind of situation? And, and you think, man, God is not, God is working in your life. It's patience that leads to growth and maturity within you. It's God working. It's patience with purpose, exactly what it is. That's exactly what he's saying. How do you learn patience? And I think it comes down to really what we value within our life. And it's this, oh, I just want my life to be easier. Is that really what I want? Is that what life is all about? Or I want to get what I deserve, what I value. And I simply value that growth process within my life. It's the dirt path of sanctification that you 
you and I, all we walk on. It's managing that, beten- that tension between the reality of my life and who I am and all of my faults and all of my failures and that of the ideal that Christ has set for me in the future. I'm managing the tension between the two of those, and God is growing me in the middle of that as I am patient, and I'm waiting on Him, and He's working. I have to see that. I have to understand that. I do. So let's level the ground. You say, Mark, when you say that, I know you're going to ask us to do something and to raise our hands and be honest about something. Aren't you? So yes, I am. So I, I admit that I struggle with patience. I really do. So how many of you in the room, and, and if, this, if it's for anybody, it's going to make me feel better, okay? All right? So how many of you in this room ever struggle with patience? Raise your hand, please, if you ever struggle with patience. Terrific. That's good. That's, that's almost, almost all of you. Put your hand down. How many of you are living and breathing right now? Put your hand up. How many of you are living and breathing? Look at the similarity of the two. Did you see that? And in that moment, when we're out fishing, in that moment, when we feel like there's no direction, God says, hey, I haven't left you. No, I'm working the entire time for you. Just trust me, because this is simply patience with purpose. This is waiting with purpose in your life. I love that. But I think God is slow. Somebody says, I've heard people say, but I, I think God is slow. Have you ever read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, at the very end of the text that we just read from the book of James, simply James talks about that of establishing our hearts. It's the knowledge and understanding that God is committed to completing the purpose for your life, that what he started, he's committed to completing for you and I, that he's for us, not against us. We say that all the time. That's it. It's a patience not based upon your faithfulness, but it's a patience based upon God's faithfulness in your life. And that changes everything. It really does. So waiting is part of the process. The second thing I, I, I glean from this text is that when you're not sure what to do next, do the next thing and trust. When you're not sure what to do next, you do the next thing. And I borrow that's a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you know who she is. Can I tell you who she is? She wrote a couple, of, a number of books. She wrote, this is a quote from a book called The Shaping of a Christian Family. Elizabeth Elliot and her, her husband, Jim Elliot, they were missionaries serving on the mission field in Ecuador. You're going to know them in just a moment. At the age of 28, Jim was martyred along with four other missionaries in Ecuador. And Elizabeth was left alone in the jungle with her infant daughter. If you ever want to read about this, it's an amazing story. The books are called simply End of the Spear or Through Gates of Splendor. They're tremendous books. But I have this quote I want to share with you that Elizabeth simply wrote in her book, The Shaping of a Christian Family. And it says this, that when I returned to the jungle station after Jim's death, I was faced with many confusions and uncertainties. New roles uh, besides being a single parent and a widow. Alone, I had to learn to do all kinds of things which I had not trained for or prepared to do. I just learned to do the next thing. And I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. And I think that's exactly where Peter is. He doesn't know exactly what to do. He doesn't know exactly where to go. He doesn't know exactly how to carry out the work of Christ further. So he just does the next thing. I I think that is exactly it. This is, you know, he's thinking, this is not how I saw it 
going down or would ever work out. I didn't see myself reacting the way I did. I'm just, I'm not going to sit here and die, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to do the next thing and I'm going to trust God and I'm going to pray and I'm going to do the next thing and I'm going to trust God. I think that is important because I think that when sometimes when we find ourselves in that moment, in that moment where we don't have clear direction for our lives, we just simply plant ourselves somewhere and we say, I'm not going to move and I'm doing nothing until I get this written in the sky or God sends me an email or God texts me or something happens that I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have this straight word from God. And I think what God would have us to do is simply this, that we continue to do the things that we know to do. We continue to do the things that we know to do. And God establishes our steps. It's what Proverbs 16 and 9, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yes. And I think there are times when I know in my life when I've been walking a certain direction and all of a sudden God will change that direction. And I think, oh, that was me or that was my decision. And, and, but I realize that what I realize is it was God all, all along working in my life because there's been times in my life that God has performed what I call holy redirects. And that is simply this, that I thought my life was going this way and I thought this is what everything had planned and God redirects my life and I trust him. I trust him. And that is messy and inconsistent with me. It is. Twelve years ago, I, I, I never, prior to that, I never thought that I would be a church planter. Absolutely not. That was nothing I was going to ever, ever involve myself with. I would stay in an established church somewhere, and I would simply grow old doing that, you know. And, and then at some point, they would put me out to pasture with all the other old pastors, and, and that would be it, you know, kind of deal, right? Yes. And, and so I, I never saw that. I, I thought that that was only for people much younger than myself and people just with this adventurous uh, the kind of personality, those are the people that skydive and mountain climb that do those kinds of things. And that was not Mark because I wanted to play it safe. And what I realized is that God did a holy redirect in my life, a holy redirect in my life. And I had to trust him through that process. I had to trust him. But what I realized or didn't realize until later is that the entire time God was moving me toward this point. But I didn't see it. But he was always at work. Move me toward that point. And so I do the next thing. And the third thing is this, that I think it's the brush that we paint all this with, that God is sovereign, that God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control over all things. It's again, the book of James chapter four, verse 13. Come now, you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? I wanted to go to that question because that's a powerful thing because that really is the thing that stresses us out sometimes. That what is my life? We sit down and we think about that. And we ponder that and we try to put together a plan. I think it's very important that you do. And as long as you're trusting God with that plan. But what is my life? And then what James does, he gives us this jolt of humility. And he says, for you are a mist. Thank you. That's exactly what I always wanted to be, right? A mist, right? What is my life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
or do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And I underline that word in my Bible. All such boasting is evil, he says. And so what James is saying is this. Listen, if we're going to talk about humility, then we got to talk about your arrogance for a moment. And when I think of arrogance and I think of biblical characters, I know that Peter could be considered arrogant at times. He's the one that tries to school Jesus upon what his duties would be as the Messiah. He's the one that says, I would never deny you. I would fall on the sword. I would die for you. No, because it's difficult, I think, for us to see ourselves as being arrogant at times because we're not going around bragging about ourselves a lot. That's not what we do. But that's not the kind of arrogance that James is talking about. It's about an arrogance of what we think we know, that we plan all of this out. It's conceived in our own mind. We speak it with our own mouth. He starts us out by, come now, you who say, we conceive this plan that we're going to go to this town and we're going to stay a certain time there. And while we're there, we're going to do a certain thing and we're going to make a certain profit. And there's nothing wrong with planning. It's not that at all. But when you do all of this without taking into account the true view of life and the plan that God has for you is an assumption on my part that I control time and I control the days and I control all those aspects of my life. Can I tell you, Jesus is sovereign. He controls all of those things. All of those things. That's it. So what is your life like? And it stresses me out just thinking about that. The solution is humility, not passivity. Because I believe that passivity is manipulation. Passivity is about getting what you want out of life. It's really what passivity, but this is about humility. And humility is resigning. It's, it's simply, it's resigning that control. It's that realization of your lack of control within your life and a reliance on Him. The solution to my life, to the stress, to all the heaviness is that of humility. It's a knowledge. It's a mindset that my life is lived through the hands of God. He establishes my steps. He is in control of all things. And I do not know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know that. And I think on one side, that's frightening. On the other side, it's greatly comforting when we know that, that Christ controls those things on our behalf. I thought about Peter. And when he's walking with Christ, he's experiencing miracles. He's walking on the water. He's doing, now he's fishing after the resurrection. He preaches after the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 plus other people come to Christ and are baptized that day. And the church is established in Jerusalem. That simply is the church that you and I are part of today. And, and what I realize that we're, when it says we're a mist, it's, a deeper, it's deeper than just the longevity of my life. But it's simply that of about a reliance on the mercy and the grace of God. That I'm utterly dependent upon God for everything, for every breath that I take. That God controls time. That God controls everything in this world. And all those things are given to you and I as a gift from the good father. Because he's the one who stands on the shore. After you've denied him and says, hey, little boys. I love that part. That's probably my favorite part, you know. Hey, little boys. He should have said, hey, a bunch of naked little boys on the boat is what he should have said, you know. Hey, little boys, cast your net on the other side. 
He not only knows where the fish are, He's the one who designed and created them. He's the one who places 153 fish under their boat at that very moment for their net to simply encompass. He's saying, Peter, I created you. I wired you with the personality that you have. But you think you control all of these things. But who's the one that's standing on the shore that has defeated death? That has cheated the grave. That has denied the grip of the grave. Who's the one that's standing on the shore telling you to cast your net? Who's the one standing here that's preparing breakfast for you? And about to give you the next steps for your life. You think you're in control? You're not in control, Peter. I'm the one that sets the course for your life. And in that realization... That is enough. That is enough. The last thought I had was Jesus is always working on our behalf, even when we can't see it. What is this all about? What does he do with us? Oh, his plan is bigger than we could ever imagine. Let's, let's read the rest of this narrative. Verse 15, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, I love this. Jesus created Peter. He knows how he is wired what is he doing? He's reaching into the very depths of his heart. It's not that he's antagonizing him just for the purpose of that. No, but he's reaching into the very depths of Peter's heart. And he says to him, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Yes, that's it. That you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What does that mean? What does he do with us? He makes us breakfast. Yes, he creates fish from the shore because when they came to the shore, there were already fish there on the charcoal fire. And he brings fish from the sea. He's the creator and the controller of all things. He's the cosmic fisherman and baker. He's the risen Lord. He just didn't pop into Publix that day and pick up some sushi and some artisan bread for them. That's not what he did. No. He creates all of that from nothing. That all the creative order is for his glory and for our joy. He reminds us that day of all of that. And reminds Peter that he has always had a plan for his life. And the plan for his life culminates in that the denier becomes the martyr. Because that's what Jesus does in our life. That he takes the denier. And he transforms him gloriously to a one that when it's time for him to give his life for the cause of Christ, 
He says, I'm not even worthy to die as Jesus died. So when you crucify me, you crucify me upside down. That is what Christ does in our lives. That patience with a purpose results in growth. And God is working even when we don't see him working within us. And we may not understand that right now. But it's not based upon our our faithfulness necessarily. But it's based upon his toward us. So where are you in this journey? You got everything planned out? Wonderful. I am so glad to hear that. And that is great. And, and I'm glad that you do. But yet I think that most of you, there are moments in your life or there are times or you're right there in the middle of that right now where you just are not sure of the next step and you don't know where that takes you. You're wondering, what does God want me to do and what does God call me to do? And maybe you think it's your fishing, that you have no direction and you have no purpose at this moment in life. Can I tell you, if you're a believer this morning, that God is working on your behalf now, now. And maybe you're the person that says, but I have done this and I've made these promises to God and, and I've made these deals with God and I've backed up on all of those and I've broken so many, if not all of them right now. And so, you know, if he's standing on the shore and I'm out there fishing and he's calling me in, I'm not sure that I don't, I don't want to paddle further out away from him because I'm not sure exactly what he's going to do to me and how he's going to receive me and what his words will be toward me. I'm not really sure. And I think Jesus settles that for you once and for all today. And he says, simply come into the shore because I made you breakfast. That I want to be with you. That I want to commune with you. Because I've been working in your life even when you didn't know it. We trust him this morning. Could you bow your heads with me for a moment, please? Just a moment of reflection together. Father, there are moments in all of our lives, I believe, Lord, and you know this, to where we struggle in seeing your hand work within us. There are moments I think that we discount ourselves. We wonder how you will accept us. We find ourselves fogged by uncertainty. And yet today, Lord, this narrative is truly for us. Because in those moments of uncertainty, you are the certainty of our lives. In those moments of instability, that you are the stability that nothing can shake. In those times where we lack direction, you are divine direction for us. Because you stand at the shore of our lives. When we are bouncing in the sea. Maybe just doing the next thing because that's all we know to do. We're going to work. We're involved with our family. We're at school. 
We're taking care of responsibilities. But yet, God, we know within our heart there's something else. And you're the one that's standing on the shore watching us. Lord, I've always wondered how long you stood on the shore and watched your disciples that day. And Lord, knowing your heart, that your heart was always for them. Yet in your divine understanding, that maybe, Father, you were saying another moment, another hour. Jesus, I've always wondered if maybe you were there all night watching them. Because their waiting was for purpose. As ours is. That we trust you in your faithfulness. So God, speak to us this morning. Bring direction to our lives. As we submit humbly to you, that knowing that you are totally in control is enough. Even when the things around us are raging back and forth, that just knowing that you are in control of all things is enough. And so we trust you. So with your heads bowed, your eyes closed for a moment of reflection, I want to ask you a question today. Maybe you can see yourself in the life of Peter this morning. And you're needing some direction for your life. Uh, Maybe you're wondering how God is going to accept you when you step on the beach. Maybe things are foggy right now for you because you've come through a a moment in your life as Peter and the disciples have. But today you purpose in your heart to trust God. You purpose in your heart to come to that moment of humility where you say, God, you're in control. And that is enough, God. That is enough. Even though all things may not be made right now, And we know that they will be someday, Lord. But just knowing that you are sovereign and in control of all things is enough. That I will not remain a slave to fear. And I'll not remain a slave to doubt in my life. But today I will trust you. So if you can see yourself in the life of Peter this morning. Whether it's direction or whether it's regret. Whatever it is, if God is speaking to you right now, just for a moment of faith, you would say to me by raising your hand, Mark, yes, that's me. Right now, just put your hand up and say, that's me. That's where I am. That's exactly where I am in my life. But today I trust God. I'm trusting with my life. 
I'm trusting with my family, my future, with my decisions. Because knowing that He is in control is enough. That is enough. Thank you, Father. And Lord, I give this to you today. I surrender this to you this morning. And I trust you. Thank you, Father. Would you stand with me this morning, please? Everyone in the room, give you a moment to pray. If you would come to the front, that's wonderful. If you want to find a place where you're seated to pray, wherever you're comfortable. But as we sing this song together before we leave, that you would make that commitment to the Lord this morning to trust Him for your future, for your present. He's covered your past and trust him today. So let's take a moment to pray together.